You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. What's up, Revolution? Yeah, this is the real revolution right here. We've we've cut the dead weight for the summer. Amen? (laughs) That's... If any of these college students listen to the podcast, I, I still love you very much. Why am I looking up to the ceiling like they're like in heaven or something? I don't know what my problem is. Anyway, so yeah, this is, uh, this is we get to really see like what Scioto County Revolution looks like. And this is super encouraging. It's, it's, it's awesome to see how much, how much we've actually grown in the last year or two years even. Uh, to know that we were, well, we had 10 or 15 people showing up there for a while. Uh, and now to see how many people are here is pretty awesome. Um, God has been really good to us. Um, so yesterday we had people, raise your hand if you graduated yesterday. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you didn't graduate. Good try, good try. No, hey, congratulations to all you guys that graduated. I love you guys. I'm super proud of you. You did something that I did not do. <laughs> uh, seriously, and you, you persevered to the end. So perseverance of the seniors is what we're going to be preaching on this evening. Lame joke, huh? Perseverance of the saints, perseverance of the seniors. No, ah, lame church jokes. I'm all about them. Anyway, um, all right, but, but for real, uh, tonight we're going to be ending our series in Luke. I, I, ne- I never thought that we would get here, to be totally honest. Tonight we're going to end our series in Luke finally. Uh, I was looking through my notes. I keep folders of, of all the sermons that I've preached. We started this series in the fall of 2014. <laughs> And it is the spring of 2016. We did five semesters worth of the Gospel of Luke. Um, I, got, I did the math. We did like the equivalent of over a year because we would take breaks here and there for like the summer and breaks during the semesters and stuff. Um, and just for full disclosure, I wanted to do like five years in the Gospel of Luke. And the, the elders at the time told me, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> so what we did is we decided to cover some of Jesus' teachings. Uh, even even then, even though we've been in this for like the equivalent of like a year and a half, year and a quarter, something like that, we still didn't cover all of the teachings of Christ in Luke. We covered uh, the big ones, if you will. Everything Jesus said was super important. Um, everything he said was true, but some things were a little bit weightier than others, and that's kind of what we tried to focus in on as we did that. Um, like I said, we decided to look at his teachings, not so much what he did, um, Aside from his resurrection, we spent a lot of time looking at that here lately, his crucifixion and resurrection. Um, but we didn't look much at uh, a lot of his miracles, you know, casting uh, demons out of people, raising people from the dead, healing the sick, the, the feeding of the multitudes. We didn't really look at that stuff. We didn't look at his healings. Um, but we, we focused on this question, did Jesus really say that, um, where we looked at uh, hard sayings of Christ, because um, often we don't really know what he said. We often know what Paul said more than what Jesus said, and we kind of wanted to try to take some time and fix that. Um, but I don't know about you guys, but for me, it, it has been a really awesome time walking through the Gospel of Luke in different spots. Um, I think it's been a really awesome time for all of us to really consider the words of Jesus and take them to heart and really get to know our Lord and Savior better, um, which I know sounds funny, um, but I think that as we understand um, how Jesus spoke and what he taught and how he treated people and how he uh, acted in certain situations, I think we really get to understand the character of Jesus Christ better, and I think that's what we've, we've had a great chance to do here um, for the last few years. Um, but this evening, we're going to switch things up a little bit to end the series. All right, like I said, we've been looking at the teachings of Jesus, uh, uh, but we're going to be looking at this evening something that Jesus did. 
We're going to be looking at an action of Jesus. So we're going to divert a little bit from the series, but we can do that because we have freedom in Christ. Um, But these last three verses um, of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 50 through 53, is what we're going to be looking at this evening. The last three verses of Luke describe Jesus' final moments on earth and then his ascension. Um, If you don't know what ascension means, that's this miraculous going up to heaven of Jesus. Right? He ascended. Um, and, And this is something that really that I've noticed, it often goes untaught. The ascension of Christ is something that goes untaught. Um, We don't so much, we don't much talk about it. Um, Preachers don't preach on it too often. We don't, I've never really had an in-depth conversation with someone about Jesus Christ ascending up to heaven and the implications that that has on believers. Um, It's just kind of a fact that, that Christians tend to check off their list of things we believe. Like, yes, Jesus came back from the dead. He was the son of God. He ascended to heaven. There's really not a whole lot else for me to think about there. Um, I personally, I don't know about any of you here, uh, show of hands, have you ever heard an actual sermon on the ascension of Jesus? Just, just on the ascension? Yeah, me either. <laughs> like, me either. And I think that that's a huge mistake um, for us not to think about this stuff. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture is good for teaching. Um, it's good for reproof, rebuke, to, to equip us to do every good work. Right? So if, if that's true, and, I, and I, I believe that that's true, and we as a church believe that, um, then that means that God never reveals something in Scripture that's not for our benefit. Everything in Scripture is meant to teach us something about God primarily, about ourselves, about the character of God, the nature of God, the work that He's done, the work that He promises to do. Everything in Scripture um, is there for a reason. So everything that the Bible teaches us has some implication on our lives, which means doctrine matters. Theology actually matters. So if you guys ever hear people say, you know, I don't really care about doctrine much, but I just really love Jesus. Don't buy that. Like, doctrine matters. And just saying, I love Jesus, is a doctrinal statement in and of itself. So just know that. Studying Scripture and understanding what the Bible teaches us truly matters because it has tons of implications on our lives. Um, so what we're going to do this evening, in light of that, um, is we're going to look at Luke's account of the ascension of Jesus. And then we're going to unpack it and see what it teaches us about Jesus. Right, this is really cool. There's, just, there's, there's a lot of stuff here, and then we're going to see what this means for us. So we're going to learn what this teaches us about Christ, and then what this means for our lives. Um, you know, Jesus going up to heaven had a profound impact on his disciples. Right, just had a, a, a super, like just this huge influence on the lives of his followers. And I just really, I don't, I thought about skipping this and just moving on to, to the book of Acts that we're going to be doing uh, this summer. And just for the record, Acts. There's supposed to be a T in there, but I don't pronounce it like that. Anyone else? It's like A-C-K-S, Book of Acts. It's going to annoy you now every time you hear me say that during the summer, that I'm not pronouncing the T. Anyway, uh, I'm lame. Uh, But I don't want us to miss out on something so important, which is why I want to cover these last verses in Luke. Um, God said it was important enough to reveal to us, and I don't want us to miss out on a reason for us to celebrate and rejoice and have hope. So I've been praying this week that we would all look at the ascension of Jesus and be encouraged in our faith. Um... Again, and rejoice, and in doing so, that we would stand in awe of our Lord and King for what He's done and who He is. And in doing so, be pushed towards genuine worship of Him, that we would pursue Him and pursue obedience towards Him, offering our lives up to Him for whatever He wants. Uh, But before we hit the actual passage, we're going to do a little bit of a recap, just in case you guys weren't here. Um, As I know, I see a couple people weren't here last week. Um, Recap of the last chapter, roughly. 
Jesus has appeared to his followers, right? He's been crucified, raised from the dead. Now he's appearing to his followers. Um, he's given a lot of different proofs of his bodily resurrection, right? Like he's, he's ate in front of them. He's talked to them. They've, they've touched him physically. He's spoken to them. Um, so he's given a lot of proof that he's actually physically alive. It's a real flesh and bone body. He's not a ghost. Um, and then he taught taught them. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures um, concerning the Messiah. Like he, he made them understand that everything in the Old Testament pointed to him and what his work had come to, or the, what he had come to do, his work of saving people, taking our punishment in our place from God, taking our sin on himself and living a perfect life for us to give to us by faith, um, that he had to suffer before he could ascend and enter into his glory. Um, he had taught them that and then he gave them the Great Commission that we talked about last week, this message that we're to all proclaim, that there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent, no matter who you are or what you've done. If you'll turn from your sin and turn towards Christ, that there is salvation for you found in Jesus' person and work. Um, And then after that, he told them that they were to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on them. And then they were to go, starting in Jerusalem, proclaiming that message of forgiveness of sins for all who would repent, and proclaim it in Jerusalem, and then proclaim it to all the world. Uh, but we also know this from the Gospel of Luke and all, like all the other Gospel accounts. We know that before Jesus' death, he had said that he must eventually leave them. Which means that he has to go back to heaven. Right? He talks about going back to heaven pretty often. And now that time has come in Luke's Gospel. So we're going to read this, verses 50 through 53. Also, if you're new here, um, I see a couple of new faces. Take one of those blue Bibles in the backs of our pews home. And if there's not a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you, let me know, and I'll hook you up. Um, Verses 50 through 53. Then Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshipped him, and then returned to Jerusalem, filled with great joy. And they spent all of their time in the temple, praising God. That passage is so short. <laughs> I gave it like, I talked it up so much, so like you guys are like, oh man, this is going to have like something crazy big in it. Um, it. It's so short. I have so many questions. Like, it drove me insane whenever I started studying for this on Monday. Like, oh, so many questions I want to ask the Lord Jesus whenever I get to heaven. Like, why didn't you give me more information in the Gospel of Luke? Um, but the Bible does this sometimes, I've noticed, in, in, in years of reading the Bible. Um, the Bible will give us really short descriptions of things um, that we're really apt to gloss over, but these short descriptions are, are of things that are inconceivably glorious to us, and I don't know if, if and I'm going to do a, a horrible job this evening trying to expound on, on truly how beautiful this moment was that Jesus ascended to heaven, um, but again, the Bible does this, and it's so short, but I have a ton of questions about this passage, um, but the big one that I want to try to unpack this evening is what about the ascension of Jesus Cause the disciples to worship Jesus and praise God. What about what we just read? Just those three verses. What about that? Cause the disciples to worship Jesus and praise God. And the reason why I asked that question, the reason why that was, I think, the big question of the passage, is because verses 52 and 53, right, half of this account marks the excitement and zeal and boldness and awe of the disciples. Right? But why? They're just pumped up about what they had just seen. And I think that there are a few things that if we gloss over them, um, we're going to really miss out. Um, and if we're not careful, we'll miss out. 
the first one is this. It says that lifting his hands, right? So he leads him out to Bethany. It's this little village, like I think it's like eastern of the Mount of Olives. Um, he takes him out to Bethany uh, and says he lifts his hands to heaven and he blesses them. Uh, why does he lift his hands? This is super cool, right? This means that he is, he's conveying that everything that he is saying comes from God. Right? Everything that he's getting ready to proclaim over them, all the blessing he's about to give them comes straight from God the Father. This is actually pretty common practice in the Old Testament. Whenever a priest would bless the nation of Israel or bless the assembly of Israel at large, he would raise his hands to heaven as he's pronouncing this blessing on them. Um, I believe Moses did it uh, a couple of times in the Old Testament. Uh, but this has really special meaning whenever Jesus does this. Right? It means that everything he's getting ready to declare to them comes from, think like a chart for a second, comes from God the Father through Jesus to the disciples, right? Which James chapter 1, verse 17 tells us that every good and perfect gift that we have comes from our Father. All right, so Jesus is, is reiterating that, that everything that I'm getting ready to say to these disciples, every promise he's going to make to them as he's blessing them comes from the Father through Christ to his disciples. And this is a really beautiful truth for us. Right? I, I spent some time just thinking about that this week. Every spiritual blessing that we have is a direct result of our being united with Christ. Right? And being united with Christ, Paul uses that wording sometimes. That just means that we get the benefits that Jesus gets because of our faith in Jesus. Right? We get sonship. Right? We're no longer viewed as sinners under God's wrath, but through faith in Jesus, we've been united with Christ. And God the Father looks at Jesus as the perfect son who's never sinned. So through our faith in Christ, he looks at us in the same way. He views Jesus without spot or blemish or anything wrong with him. So through Christ, he views us the same way. Everything that we have, every blessing that we have, as a direct result of Jesus. It comes as a direct result of Jesus. We get nothing but wrath apart from the Father. We deserve nothing in general, but there's no blessing for us. We can't even approach God apart from Jesus Christ. You ever wondered why we pray in Jesus' name? It's just a, a, just, just a verbal acknowledgement that the only way that I can come and approach the throne of God is through Jesus. It's something the author of Hebrews tells us a lot, right? We're sinners and we deserve justice, but through Jesus we get grace. I just thought that was a beautiful truth. So lifting his hands to heaven, he's giving them a a visual symbol that everything that I'm going to declare to you comes from my Father, and it's only through me that you get any of it. I think that's something that really we need to keep at the forefront of our minds. We don't deserve anything that we get, and it's only by the blood and grace of Jesus Christ given to us without any merit on our own that we get any blessing. But then he says he blessed them. So he lifts his hands to heaven, and he blessed them. Now what does that mean? Right? This drove me nuts. This is, I realize how stupid that I am. What does the word bless mean? Like, this is a really churchy word, right? And what I mean by churchy word is like, if you grew up in church, you've been in church for like any amount of time, it's a word that we use. We don't really know what it means, but like we use it. Like, oh, bless his heart. Like, what does that really mean? All right, and, and, it, and it hit me this week. I don't really know what the word bless means. Um, but I studied it, right? So here we go. Uh, there are actually two words in, in Greek. Um, that we translate to the word uh, bless. And I can't hardly pronounce Greek, so I'm not going to try. Uh, but the first one means um, happy is the man. Right? It ca- carries a, a, a connotation like that. Like, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Also, I don't know why we say blessed. Whenever you say, like, I'm blessed. I, you don't say I'm blessed, but whenever we quote the Bible, we always say blessed are the poor. I don't know why. Church thing, I suppose. God bless the King's English. Um, but, but one of them means, one of these words mean happy is the man. It's why we get blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy is the one who acknowledges his poor state before God because he'll go to him to mercy, or go to God for mercy and God will give it to him. Right? So that's the first usage of the word. 
Uh, and the other Greek word that we translate into bless, uh, and it's found in this passage, means good words. Right? It's super cool and kind of dark. It's the root word for eulogy. <laughs> it, 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 the, word that, the word that's used here for bless is the root word for eulogy, which if you didn't know means good words that you speak about someone who's died. Um, so Jesus is lifting his hands to heaven and he begins to speak good words to his followers. I thought that was really important for me to know. And I wanted you guys to know that. So, and, and I'm riding off John MacArthur. He's a much better preacher than me. Um, I think he hit the nail on the head. He, he said that Jesus is proclaiming and promising good words to his disciples. He's promising blessing to them. But what words? What blessing is he giving them? Scripture doesn't say. Right? And this, again, drove me. There's so many things about this passage that drove me insane. Like this week, I was like beating my head against the walls of my house, like praying, God, please help me out here. Um, but what words? Scripture doesn't tell us what words Jesus said to him. But I think it stands the reason that Jesus gives them reminders. Right? Think, he repeats things that he said to them in the past. This is a common thing that Jesus would do. He's often a, a broken record of sorts. Um, I don't mean that in a bad way, but Jesus is constantly reiterating to the disciples a lot of the same things because the disciples like us are stupid and we usually don't listen to him the first time around. Um, but I, I imagine Jesus is reminding them things like, through him, God has given them salvation. Right? Hands to heaven, through me, the Father saves you from your sin. The Father saves you from the penalty that you deserve because you rebel against Him daily. Through me, the Father gives you grace that you don't deserve for your sin daily. Through me, the Father gives you mercy. He doesn't give you what you actually do deserve. Through me, the Father cares for you because you become a son of God through me. And the Father always cares for His children. Through me, you're going to receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit that I've promised you, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. He's going to comfort you in your suffering. I imagine Jesus is reminding them things like that. Um, but then we also see, it says that as he's saying these things to them, right, and, and, and I'm imagining he's saying this stuff along those lines to them. He's reminding them of all these things he's promised them, pledging his love for them. It says that while he's blessing them, he was taken up, Right? Which, whenever I first read that, I thought that meant that, like, as Jesus is in mid-sentence, like, Ugh, like he starts, like, going up to heaven, like, God's cutting him off, like, one of those people, like, that plays, like, the orchestra on at the Grammy Awards and stuff. They're like, all right, man, you need to wrap it up. Like, Chappelle's show, the wrap it up box. Nobody? Whatever. Anyway. But, um, but yeah, like, I immediately thought, like, is that what he's doing? Is he, like, yanking Jesus off stage, saying, like, all right, it's, that's not what happened. Um, like, the father wasn't cutting Jesus off early. I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea. Um, but what that means is as he's blessing them, he's taken up. It means that as he's speaking these good things, this is beautiful. As he's speaking these things to them, reminding them of all the blessings that are theirs because of him, because of their faith in him, he begins to go up, which means he's still speaking these things to them. As he ascends and ascends and eventually the cloud of God's glory obscures him from their sight, which means the last things that they hear Jesus saying as he's in the air ascending is him just, just shouting these blessings down to them, reminding them of all of these things. Right? He's showing them that he loved them until the very end, which is something he promised them. He says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. And I'll throw this to you. If he's blessing them until they can't see him anymore, Right, his words fading as he's, as he's going up, and he keeps blessing them and blessing them. Why would we think that his blessing has ever stopped for his people? And this is kind of a weird thing. I, I think that that's very telling, that, that he blesses them until they can't see him anymore. I think that's a symbolic way for him letting us know that his departure from earth does not put an end to his blessing here for us. 
Right, but how is that true? <laughs> right, that's the real question. How is that true? You know, Jesus departing earth, I don't know about you guys, but if I'm hanging out with Jesus and he's like, hey man, I'm going to go back to heaven, I would think that's the worst news I've ever possibly heard in my life, that I will not have Jesus Christ physically present with me here anymore. Like, that seems like the worst thing imaginable to a disciple. So again, the question, Jesus ascends, why does this make the disciples rejoice and worship God? Why? I would argue this. The ascension made them worship, made them rejoice, made them praise God because of why Jesus ascended. Because of why he ascended and what he ascended to do. There's a lot of beauty and a lot of truth we're getting ready to go through. I want us to consider five things. And we're going to have to look at a good bit of scripture because the ascension is not preached on much. And I don't want you guys to think that I'm just up here spouting off a bunch of bull opinion to you guys because we're not that kind of a church. I want you guys to see from the scriptures what Jesus ascended to heaven to do. And I hope that you guys, I've been praying that you guys would be comforted by these truths and be excited and be zealous for good works and be rooted in your confidence in Jesus Christ because of these things. But the first thing that I, I believe Jesus was ascended to heaven for is he was ascended for his coronation. Right? That means that he was ascended to be crowned. Right? Just like any king would be crowned. Um, receive honor and glory. Jesus ascended to heaven to be crowned King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Jesus went up to heaven to, like he had promised before, the Son of Man will enter into his glory. The Messiah must suffer and die and be raised from the dead before entering his glory. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 talks about Jesus has suffered and died a criminal's death on the cross. And then it says, Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven to be glorified by the Father. To be exalted This means that as Jesus ascended, one of the things he ascended to do was to be forevermore exalted and worshipped in heaven, as he should be. Our attempts of worship now, God takes them, right, from us, and and, and he enjoys them, and he delights in our praises, but, but make no mistake, our attempts at worship and obedience are mingled with sin, because at our core, we're still sinners. But what's awesome is that through Jesus Christ, or for, because Jesus was ascended to heaven, he actually gets perfect exaltation and perfect worship in heaven. He actually gets what's coming to him, right? I got my notes. He's getting his due, right? Like, you ever see that guy, and, and, and I, I've had this happen to me recently. You see that guy who kind of like maybe uh, had a hard time in high school, and then you see him doing really, really, really well later in life, and you're like, yeah, that guy got what was coming to him, and I'm super excited for him. Like, that's how I feel, and that's how I think we should feel, knowing that Jesus Christ, was, uh, he ascended to heaven to be crowned. He's actually getting what's due to him, that no one ever again will disrespect him to his face. Ever. People may do stupid things on earth and rebel against him, but the Bible says that at some point in time, everyone will bow on their face at the feet of Jesus. Whether they bend the knee themselves or God the Father rips their knees out from them, they will bow before him and he will get what's due to him. That makes me really excited. That makes me really excited. 
He's finally getting the perfect worship that he deserves that I can't give him yet until I die and I get a glorified body so I can worship him perfectly and it not be mingled in with sin anymore. This should make us rejoice that our king is actually being worshipped properly and that everyone will acknowledge his lordship someday. Because he is king. This is beautiful. But not only that, the fact that he was crowned king should, should just really make us just rock solid cemented in the fact that we have trusted in the right person. Why do I say that? Really simple. God would not crown a false king. <laughs> this, was, this was one of those weeping preacher moments whenever I was studying for this. God would not crown a false king. He, Jesus Christ would not have been raised from the dead. He most definitely would not have ascended to heaven in a cloud of God's glory that we read about in the Old Testament unless he actually was the Messiah. Unless he actually was the king of kings. God would not crown me. He wouldn't crown me. He wouldn't raise me to heaven to be ascended in a cloud of his glory. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve that. Jesus actually deserves it, which means that we can be rock solid and assured that our trust has been in the true Messiah because God would not crown an imposter. He says, I will share my glory with none. And yet he gives glory and exaltation to the Son, which means Jesus is God. We actually have salvation through Jesus. He is actually the right one that we have trusted in. That's beautiful hope for us. But if he was ascended to be crowned, and he was ascended to become king, right? To be this glorified king as the God-man Jesus Christ. That means this. What do kings do? Kings rule. So Jesus Christ ascended to rule. Right? It says that he's, the Bible tells us he has been given all power and all authority as the God-man. He had all power and all authority in eternity past before he took on a flesh and bone body, but this is a new kind of thing because he actually has flesh and blood. It sounds kind of strange, but this is a new kind of crowning. This is a new kind of rule that has never happened before, that Jesus would rule as the God-man, which he foretold at the trial. You will see me seated at the right hand of God the Father in power. This reference to Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man. But Ephesians chapter 1, 19, uh, verses, tw- verses 19 through 22, the Apostle Paul writes, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ, and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. So our king, the right king, who has been crowned, who is worshipped and exalted, whom we have trusted, if you're a Christian, is far above everything. He is supreme. He is, uh, to, to paraphrase Paul in Colossians chapter 1, he is preeminent in all things. He is the sovereign king. Which means everything that we could possibly endure in our lives is a result of the king decreeing that this will come our way. It's a decree of the king saying, you will have to endure this trial. Every good thing as well, not just the suffering parts, but every good thing means that the king has graciously said, I will give you this blessing. I will give you this moment of joy. I will give you this happiness that comes your way. I want us to know that Jesus rules But from what we just read in Ephesians, he doesn't rule arbitrarily like a tyrant. I think it's incredibly important for us to know. He rules for the benefit of his church, verse 22 says. God's made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. 
The church is, it's his people, it's us, if you're here and you're a believer. Which means that the king loves us. And again, I always say, if you ever question whether or not God loves you, no matter what kind of suffering you might be going through, if you ever question God's love for you, look at the cross, where he set Jesus forward as the one who would bear the wrath of God for our sin and our place. And we don't deserve that. That's proof that he loves us, that he would save us at at such a high cost. So we can be... like, for certain, that whatever we endure is not because God desires our pain, like he's some kind of sadist, right? Like, this isn't because Jesus is, is, is some kind of insane person sitting on the throne, like Bruce Almighty talks about burning ants with a magnifying glass. That's not it. But rather, he desires our ultimate good. Everything that he does is for the benefit of his church. And the scripture tells us that whenever we suffer, we're being made more like Christ. And we talk about this often at Revolution, so I won't labor the point. But that... For me, that means that we ought to find peace in the ascension of Christ, knowing that this loving king has been crowned, and he actually is above all things, including our lives, which means he is in control of everything. So we have no need for fear. We have no need for fear, and we have no need for despair, because this king loves us and has proven his love for us, and we trust in him, and he rules for the benefit of his people, not for the destruction of his people. The Bible says God destroys the unrighteous, the ones who won't repent. But for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, there's no more wrath for us. So however he rules our lives, it's to our benefit. I think we can find peace if we trust that. But as kings rule, so he was crowned, he rules. As kings rule, they send help to their people. They send aid to their people. And I need a lot of help. (laughs) I don't know about you guys. I need a lot of help. You ever get those you ever get those moments where like you just feel like you can't overcome a certain sin in your life? For me, my my my, my big one, my life's battle for five years has been overcoming pornography. I know that I'm not alone in that. Overcoming hatred for someone who's wronged you or someone you love. Maybe someone in your family who didn't treat you the way that you ought to have been treated through no fault of your own. Overcoming hatred, overcoming lust, overcoming greed, where we don't want to be open-handed uh, with our resources, all this stuff. Whatever it is, everyone's had that. If you've been a Christian very long, you feel like you've hit the wall, and like you just can't get past that sin. You feel like you just can't climb over that wall. But Jesus ascended to send the Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful truth. Jesus ascended to send the Holy Spirit. This was promised to Jesus, and it happened at Pentecost. John 14, 17, Jesus is talking. He says, He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world, in unbelievers, cannot receive Him because it isn't looking for Him and doesn't recognize Him. But you, believers, know Him because He lives with you now and later will be in you. He's talking to the disciples. The Holy Spirit hasn't taken up residency in them yet, but he promises that later, referring to Pentecost, later the Holy Spirit will actually live in you. So here's what this means for us, because Pentecost happened a long time ago, right? That means that the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead and empowered Jesus to perform all the miracles that he performed actually lives in us if you're a believer. I remember I said this years ago um, in a small group with Dustin Cooley. This is better than physical Jesus here with us. That's why he says it's actually better that I leave because if I don't leave, then the Holy Spirit will never come. Right? It was God's eternal decree that Jesus would have to ascend to heaven and then the Holy Spirit would, would uh, descend on believers. 
Now, why is this better that the Holy Spirit be with us instead of Jesus physically present? This is really weird. This is going to strike you as odd because it did me. Jesus is actually bound in space and time. He has a body. He can only be in one place at one time. Don't ever get that twisted. Jesus didn't ascend to heaven and then become a spirit. The Bible teaches very, very clearly he has a flesh and bone body right now. That from the moment that he was, um, from the moment he was born for eternity, eternity in the future, he will always be the God-man Jesus. But the Spirit is not bound in that way. Right? The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He is Spirit. And according to Jesus, what he just said, he lives in believers. Jesus doesn't do this. Right? So Jesus doesn't live in us, but God the Holy Spirit resides in every single individual believer, which is something that Jesus could not do. So it really is better that that happens. Why? Because God himself then, third member of the Trinity, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit a lot, mainly because I'm afraid of him. Uh, I don't want to get my theology wrong on him. I'm going to be totally honest with you. That's why I don't talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. Uh, but it's staring me right in the face here. I can't get away from it. Um, or from him. Holy Spirit's a him, too. See? I'm working on it. Um, but God himself then, the Holy Spirit, resides in every single believer. Now, what does that mean? That means that this life that we're living of trying to be faithful disciples to Jesus Christ, we're not doing it alone. We need help. Actually, before we could even become Christians, the Holy, had, the Holy Spirit had to do a work in our hearts to make us open to the gospel so that we could believe it because we hated God so much and were so hostile against his good news that we couldn't believe by ourselves. So we wouldn't even be saved if Jesus didn't ascend to heaven and then send the Holy Spirit. But aside from that, there's great reason to rejoice for us that Christ ascended to heaven because he poured out the Holy Spirit. That means that as we struggle and strive to kill sin in our lives... You're not doing this of just your own volition. God himself says, I will give you the means as well as the command. Right? God gives us the command to live holy lives. And he says, I will give you the Holy Spirit to empower you to do these things. Anytime that we resist sin, that's a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's not you white-knuckling yourself into obedience. That's a Holy Spirit working through you to, to resist temptation, to kill sin. Anytime that you find enough boldness in yourself to go and proclaim the gospel to someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, that boldness does not come from you. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do those things. Which is really encouraging to a sinner like me who finds themselves hitting that wall often, that I'm not doing this by myself. That God is actually in us. Like giving us the will and the ability to do what He wants us to do. So we should rejoice because of the sending of the Spirit. We've not only come to faith, but we're actually empowered to do God's will. This is is really awesome too, though. A couple other things. Our King also ascended. Not just to send forth the Spirit, not just to to rule, and not just to be crowned, but our King ascended to work. To actually do work. I don't know how else to really say that. He actually ascended to do work. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ ascended to heaven to continually mediate on our behalf. Right? That, that Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says this. But because Jesus lives forever, he is eternal, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save completely those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Right? So Jesus is our eternal advocate to the Father. Right? 
So not only did Jesus take our punishment in our place on the cross, but actually in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, Jesus stands there as like our defense attorney. What hope we have in that? Like, how beautiful is that? Satan is often described in the Bible as the accuser. Right? So like, in, in, like the first chapter of Job, like he goes, to jo- or he goes to God, Satan does, and accuses Job of some different things. And that means he does the same for us. Whenever we sin, Satan would go to the throne and say, you ought not love them. You ought not show them any mercy. And Jesus stands there. What a defense attorney we have in Christ. To stand there and say, my blood covered their sin. I took what they deserve. Love them. Love them because you love me and they've been united to me. Again, every blessing that we have comes from the Father through Christ to us. What an advocate that we have. Satan accuses, but Jesus is our defender. That's beautiful truth. But more than that, I believe that Jesus intercedes by praying for us. And in doing so, saves us completely. Or uh, Hebrews in the ESV says, what we just read, says he saves to the uttermost. Sounds really cool. So he saves to the uttermost. Um, I think that that means both from the penalty of sin later, right, in hell, and from the power of sin now in this life. I believe that Jesus intercedes for us. Um, and I say that because in the final hours of Jesus' life, he prayed for us. So I see no reason that he would have stopped now. Right? He's still in communion with God. He still loves us, and he still cares for us. Right? But how did he pray for us? John chapter 17, verse 24 says, Father... I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. What does that mean? It means Jesus is praying that we would persevere until the end. Seriously, like if you've not been paying attention, like listen up for this. Jesus prays that God would empower us to persevere in the faith until we die. Why? So that we could be with Him. Jesus wants us to be with Him. He actually took time out of His day, hours before He died, to say, Father, please keep them in Your grace so that they would not fail. Because I want them. And I want them because You've given them to me. Save them. Keep them in your grace. But not only that, John 17, 17 through 19, Jesus also prayed this in that same prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer. He says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. So that means Jesus prays that we would be a set apart people that we would become more and more like Him because of the truth of the Scriptures, because of God's truth found in Christ. He prays that we would glorify God in our lives and and conquer sin in our lives by His grace. He actually prays that we would be set free from the power of sin in this life. Not just from hell later, but that's actually what He's praying for, that we would be holy and glorify God in the lives that we live. It blew my mind this week thinking about that the King of Kings prays for us in heaven. (laughs) Like, we don't deserve that. Like, you think that he would just be done, right? Like, I died for him. I'm done. I'm not going to do anything more for them. They didn't deserve that. This This shows us the heart of our King Jesus, that he actually, day and night, intercedes for us forever, that God would keep us in the faith, that God would help us to... Kill the sin in our lives. 
That we could get over those walls. This is beautiful because I don't know if you guys have ever encountered this reality about yourself. Like you suck. Just being honest. I don't know if you've ever like had that reality hit you full in the face. That left to our own devices, we would fail and abandon the faith. You are not a Christian by your own strength. You do not persevere in following Jesus Christ in your own strength. If you've not realized that, I want you to think a little bit harder about how much you fail. And how anything else in this life that we fail this often at, we will give up because we will say we are no good at it. And yet we continue to do this. We continue on in faith no matter how much that we fail. Why is that? The book of James says the prayers of a righteous man have great effects. And we have the most righteous man ever praying for us. Day and night that the Father would keep us. What better assurance do we have that we will not fail? Because Jesus will not be denied. His prayer will be answered with yes from the Father. Because He's praying that God will be glorified in our salvation. This is so encouraging to me. Jesus Christ effectively prays for us. And He effectively advocates on our behalf. Which means that we are actually innocent and we will persevere to the end. Oh, take faith in that. Take hope in that. But then this one, this is the biggest one. These last two were the biggest ones for me and this is the biggest one. Jesus ascended. This is so simple. He ascended to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. He ascended to be seated. Hebrews 1.3 in the ESV says this. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's think about that for a second. He sat after. So he accomplished something beforehand. He sat after making purification for sin. He sat after making a definite atonement for sin that actually saves people. He rested after making a singular purification for sin. That's a singular word. That means once and for all time, for all of those who would believe, it is done and it is in stone. Think about this. Why do we sit down? We sit down to rest, which implies that we have been doing work. Jesus sat down. He was seated on His throne, signifying to us that His earthly work of accomplishing our salvation is done. Like, I can't stress this enough to believers whenever you feel like, how do I know that I'm saved? Jesus wasn't kidding whenever He said, it is finished on the cross. He wasn't joking. He really meant it. I'm done with my work. There is no more work to be done, neither by Jesus nor by us. There is no amount of good works for us to do to make God love us. Jesus has actually accomplished all of the work for us. We can rest in Him because He rests on His throne. We can put our hope in Him because He is seated. Because Christ ascended, we can know that we are actually saved. This hit me full in the face this week. 
I don't have to defend or depend on my own efforts to save myself. He is seated. He sits because he's done with work, and I can trust that his work is actually complete. He is seated on the throne, and we are saved. Now, whether in part or completely, right, whether in part or, or completely, the disciples understood these truths. I'm convinced of that. On one level or another, the disciples understood these truths. And what did it make them do? It made them rejoice. It said they went back to the temple rejoicing and praising God. It made them stand in awe of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It gave them a solid foundation for their hope in Jesus, that they've trusted the King. It gave them a boldness to go out and proclaim the gospel and to look suffering dead in the face and say, my king works all things for the benefit of those who love him. And they knew their king was in control. It made them zealous to kill the sin in their lives because they knew that God lives in them and empowers them because Jesus ascended to send the Holy Spirit. Jesus' ascension gave them comfort that God would keep them because the king prays for them still. And it blessed them with this rock-solid assurance that they are truly saved and that they need only to trust in Jesus because the king is seated on the throne. All of these truths hit them, and they rejoiced, and they worshipped. They didn't just sing in the temple. They began to worship God with their lives. They went out and risked their their reputations for the gospel. They risked their lives for the gospel. They made all kinds of sacrifices to kill the sin in their lives. They did whatever is necessary because they understood this great reality that the king has ascended and he is all that matters. So may we also stand in the glory of our Lord Jesus and be struck with awe. And in doing so, be pushed towards true worship like the disciples had. That we would offer our lives as living sacrifices like Paul tells us to do in the book of Romans. And that we would offer our lives in that way out of gratitude for the finished, accomplished work of our ascended King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for raising Jesus and seating him at your right hand. God, help us to take hope in all of these things that we're actually saved, that the work's actually done, that Jesus actually loves us enough to continuously intercede on our behalf. God, help us to not believe the lie that we can't overcome sin. You didn't send the Holy Spirit to us so that we could remain the same. You sent the Holy Spirit to us so that we could persevere and overcome sin. Jesus, you are the king. Help us to live lives like servants out of love for the king. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.